On Friday, June 24, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark decision that had granted the legal right to safe medical abortions. This decision gave power to the states to make their own decision as to the legality of abortion. Because of trigger laws, many states already had made the decision to, at best, complicate and endanger the lives of women, or at worst, create umbrella bans that would threaten and ultimately destroy women's lives. Of course, this issue has been hotly debated and voiced by politicians, churches, mothers, women, people with uteruses, and everyone else in between. But little can be argued against the significant role the religious right has played in this topic for the last 50 years. But what if it wasn't always this way? What if what you knew and understood about a Christian's stance on abortion wasn't built on doctrine or scripture, but rather political motivation? I'm Harley. And I'm Tim. And this is the Deconstruction Series. Welcome to the Always More podcast, where we believe there is always more room at the table for honest questions, meaningful conversations, and deeper understanding. Today, we're going to start by hearing from Dr. Eric Burnett in his response to someone saying, if a doctor doesn't know when his patient is in a life-threatening condition or situation, then he doesn't need to be a doctor. So I'm going to give you a clinical scenario, and I want you to tell me when you would deem an abortion medically necessary based upon your understanding of both the law and medicine. Okay, so get your thinking cap on and let's get started. So we have a 25-year-old woman with a past medical history of pulmonary arterial hypertension. Her last echocardiogram showed that she had mild to moderately reduced right ventricular systolic function. Her last right heart catheterization showed that she had a pulmonary arterial systolic pressure of 70 millimeters of mercury. Her pulmonary vascular resistance was also elevated. She was told by her doctors not to get pregnant. Unfortunately, her birth control failed, and she found out that she was pregnant after six weeks gestation and therefore could not get an elective termination of pregnancy, but she had an interdisciplinary team of physicians who monitored her condition very closely. As her pregnancy progressed, she became progressively more short of breath, having dyspnea on exertion and decreased exercise tolerance. Her doctors managed this by changing around her medications and increasing her diuretic dose. She was stable during this time. As her pregnancy progressed further, she became even more short of breath and reduced exercise tolerance limited to just moving around her apartment before getting really short of breath. Her doctors put her on bed rest, adjusted her medications, and she was still stable. One morning in her second trimester, she got up out of bed and collapsed suddenly on the floor. She was brought to the emergency room where she was found to have a blood pressure of 70 over 40, heart rate in the 150s. She was diagnosed with a pulmonary hypertensive crisis and acute on chronic right heart failure. She subsequently suffered a cardiac arrest, was resuscitated and crashed to ECMO. She underwent an emergency cesarean section and her baby was delivered, sent to the NICU. Unfortunately, there were complications and it died several hours after delivery. The patient was then brought to the medical intensive care unit where she was found to be in multi-organ failure, including liver failure and oliguric renal failure requiring dialysis. Despite aggressive measures, the patient died on postpartum day two. So Nick, according to your understanding of both the law and medicine, when was her abortion legally permissible and medically necessary? Now, while Nick mulls that over, I'm gonna talk to the rest of you. The reason I bring this up is to highlight just how complex all of this is. It isn't black and white. Medical emergencies could be subtle, or they can develop in a matter of minutes to hours and patients can decompensate. And unless you have been in a situation where you are in front of a critically ill decompensating patient, managing them, making real time life and death decisions, these types of comments carry absolutely no weight. This issue is not simple. It's not easy and it's very hard and complex. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded horrible. To say the least. Oh, man. I'm going to say something real quick, and then we're going to move forward. Mm. So for those of you listening that consider yourself on the conservative side of this issue, and you're already ready to turn this off because an embryo is a human life, and that's the end of it, I need you to hear this. Hear me. I hear you. I myself, as you will hear throughout this episode, am coming to terms just recently with certain points and ideas regarding abortion. And I'd like you to just, I'd like you to just be patient and hear how I, a straight white man who was raised in the evangelical culture and was defending the life of the unborn, even to the extent of hosting debates in my high school, had begun to seek perspectives I might have been missing on this issue. My stance, not my feelings on this, has just very recently changed and probably not for the reasons you might be thinking of. This is going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Um, we're going to throw in a trigger warning before we go any further. It's going to be a very emotionally charged episode. Um, it's very personal, obviously, to me as a woman. But I've also known several people who've had abortions. Um, and then I would assume Tim, you know, as a person who cares for women and things of that nature, it's very difficult when it comes to a very serious topic like this. Right. Um. As you probably have have not heard already, or if you're watching have not seen, Chris is not here with us. Uh, he, he just long story short, a lot of issue not issues with him, but like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just scheduling. Yeah, that's the word. Scheduling conflict and yeah. So we were already recording this further back than we wanted to, and then there was more stuff that happened. So yep. long story short, Chris wanted to be here, he couldn't. And then lastly, um, a lot of what we're going to say is sourced. Mm-hmm. We, we wanted to make sure that a lot of what we say today is not just our opinions or feelings. our feelings, though that's not, not important. Uh, that is important. Um, but we, don't want to, we also wanted to bring in experts and statistics yeah. and things that you can look at and go, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we got. All righty. Well, first, we're going to do what we have been doing and establish some ground rules and definitions. Um, just so you can keep them in the back of your mind and recognize some of like the common thoughts that people will have throughout the episode. So uh, the first one is abortion. Um, so according to Harvard Health Publishing, abortion is the removal of pregnancy tissue, products of conception, or the fetus and placenta, a.k.a. after birth, from the uterus. Um, notice there's no condition as to the intent or health of the mother when referring to this definition. Right, yeah. It, a lot of people will use the word abortion as only the intent to take away life. Right. And that's not what it does medically. So anyways, <clears throat> ectopic pregnancy. According to the American College of Obstet- Obstetricians and uh, Gynecologists, an ectopic pregnancy occurs when a fertilized egg grows outside of the uterus. Almost all ectopic pregnancies, more than 90%, occur in the fallopian tube. As the pregnancy grows, it can cause the tube to burst or rupture. A rupture can cause major internal bleeding. This can be a life-threatening emergency that needs immediate surgery. Mm-hmm. And as you, as we listened into that from Dr. Um, oh, shoot, I lost his name. Uh, Dr. Oh, no, where is it? Dr. Eric. Um, these life-or-death decisions, moments, 
don't aren't always foreseeable. Yeah. In in long term, they they can be very quick. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Anyways. Um. The next one is miscarriage, and I noticed Tim, you made a little note at the very beginning of this. If yeah. you want to state that. Yes, I I didn't know this, but in the medical field, a miscarriage is basically a layperson's term for what a more professionally known as is a spontaneous abortion. Mm. So what everyone has been calling miscarriage is in the medical term, a spontaneous abortion. Okay, cool. Um, so this is from medlineplus.gov. A miscarriage is a spontaneous loss of a fetus before the 20th week of pregnancy. Pregnancy losses after the 20th week are called stillbirths. Miscarriage is a naturally occurring event. Naturally occurring event. Unlike medical and surgical abortions, a miscarriage may also be called a spontaneous abortion, like we said, and other terms for the early loss of pregnancy include complete abortion, which is where all of the products or the tissue of conception leave the body, an incomplete abortion, only some of the products of conception leave the body, an inevitable abortion, symptoms cannot be stopped, and a miscarriage will happen infected abortion or septic abortion which is when the lining of the womb or the uterus and any remaining products of conception become infected and then a missed abortion the pregnancy is lost and the products of conception do not leave the body right and and this is really a problem because politicians who don't know these terms create laws with their definitions or their understandings like the layman's term for miscarriage Mm -hmm. that further complicate treating women and so, like, for example, there's a new Texas law that requires doctors to report women who have had miscarriages to the government because the term incomplete abortion is listed as a potential, inc- uh, excuse me, a potential complication from elective abortion. Hmm. So if you were to have a miscarriage, so here's a scenario. You, you wanted to get pregnant. Right. You're 20 weeks pregnant and something happens. And because there is an incomplete abortion in your case— the doctor has to report to the government. Mm. You could have picked out a name. You've probably done gender reveal. You've done all these things. And now an investigation can start on you. Is this this. also saying, because I assume when most women get incomplete abortions, they go to have it become a complete abortion because you don't, because if you leave all of that, um, the tissues from conception inside your womb, it will become an infected abortion and that can lead to serious health issues. And so that's what I assume is what happens. The women go to be like, Hey, I had a partial miscarriage. I'm still not feeling great. I don't know what's going on. Right. And I, is that like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's basically just getting checked on like, Hey, this happened. I just want to make sure everything's okay. Mm. Anything like that. So, Long story short, it's not simple. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the theme of this series, and it's also the theme of this topic. It's not simple. Yeah. We think it is. We think it's just life or death. Right. Um, but if we don't know all the definitions, which we don't because we're not doctors, we can create problems by trying to set rules that we don't fully understand the, the consequences of. Yeah. You know, we trust doctors for open-heart surgeries, but not how to help treat women or the the how, how to how allow a woman and the doctor to make the choice to whether abort a child or not right. or it's not even a child at that point as if it's not like a whole um type of doctor that specializes right. in care for women and um uteruses and you know vaginal health aka of gynecologists right and obstetricians mm, love that yeah would you, do you is it me? To... Oh, it's me. I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Uh, bodily autonomy. So this is a this is a good one to to 
to, to, to know. According to John Letzing at World Economic Forum, body autonomy is the power of women to make choices about their own bodies without facing coercion or violence. Mm. Um, however, a United Nations Population Fund report has suggested that roughly half of all women are denied bodily autonomy. In the 57 countries surveyed, the proportion of women aged between 15 and 49 are able to make autonomous decisions when it comes to sex with partners or husbands. Contraception and seeking health care range from 87% to as low as 7%. Um, I know a lot of women, not just like personally, but also like online, um, who have told me that they have tried to get their tubes tied. Mm. Oh, yeah, I've seen or, this all over TikTok. Or things of that nature. And um, there are requirements, which I guess kind of literally goes against this definition of bodily autonomy because they mm-hmm. expect you to either have permission from your husband if you're married. You probably need, like, two kids already, a couple kids. Yeah. Um, and you also have to, like, make sure that you definitely want to do this because it's not reversible blah 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 um and so i just feel like that really goes against um the whole without phasing coercion part because you're literally still with all of these requirements you're still facing like making women face like this like thought in the back of their head that is probably not even there until they have to go through all these steps like oh, do I actually want this, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I'm just being over, like, reactive and all this kind of stuff. When it's like, when a woman, I feel like when a woman knows something about her body or a person with a uterus knows something about their body, they know that that's what they want to do. It's like getting, like, a tattoo or, like, a piercing or something like that. Like, that's, you should have that control over your own being. Yeah. And I feel like that also goes for other medical things, like, um, surgeries other Mm -hmm. types of surgeries or like which you do ultimately yeah you make a decision based on you know the risks and whatever but yeah i feel like in this case when it comes to abortion um there's so many or like tubes tied and stuff like that right we're forced to jump through hoops because you don't want to regret it blah 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 blah. and that and that really is one of the one of the eye-opening things that you mentioned with being like uh, tubes tied like women are denied or, or at least made it so much more complicated. Like for me, I had a vasectomy last year. Mm-hmm. And it was simple as me going to the doctor once, get checked out. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes. Okay. Came back a couple months later because it was busy. Are you sure you want to do this? Yes. All right. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Literally that simple. Ah, nope. Nope, nope, nope. It's, re- it's remarkable to me because there's people saying, oh, well, this isn't women's rights. It's all about this, life of the baby or life of the child or whatever. And it's it's just not. It, there's so many. We'll get to it later. Yeah. Well, there, they, we will discuss statistics and science and yeah. things of that nature. Um, the next definition we have is being pro-choice, which um, I'm going to define myself. Um, <laughs> being pro-choice, whether you like abortion or not, is being pro the choice of others to make decisions for their own bodily autonomy. Like, to have bodily autonomy over themselves. Not have any input <laughs> or impact on their decisions. Yeah. That's what pro-choice is. Um, pro-life, or as I've heard from especially Dr. Eric, is pro-birthers. Um, I want to be careful with this because, it, I, I guess I'll kind of state this now. I'm not a huge fan of these terms, both of them. Yeah. Uh, because it produces a binary that I don't think actually exists. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. even for the pro-choicers, there there is there is no one out there that's like, you know, I just want to go kill babies. Right. That doesn't exist. And yet, as someone who grew up in the evangelical world, that was the perception of pro-choicers, pro mm. was that they just want the ability to kill Baby. babies. Mm. And so, I say pro-life and pro-birth is usually it's the stance of wanting to um, protect babies. And there can be, can be good intentions behind this. The problem is this pro-life is usually only referred to the fetus. And sometimes there are so many issues, as we have already stated and we will discuss later, that complicates that. Mm -hmm. It's not simple as just there is a life or there is not a life inside that woman's body. Um, So... That's why I say pro-life and also pro-birth because more people are just wanting there to be pro-birth and it's because it's a political agenda. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. Very good. <laughs> so these are a lot of terms and things that will be referenced throughout the episode. So just keep them in mind. Yeah. You ready to dive in completely? <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll be right back. As we dive into this extremely personal and complicated subject, um, we want to remind you guys that we're not trying to convince you of anything. We're not trying to change your minds on what you believe or anything of that nature. Um, Two-thirds of us used to have a conservative understanding of the issue, and um, our perspectives changed not from debates, but from testimonies of people, individuals, living people. Right. Um, the thoughts, statistics, and reasonings we share are not here for coercion, but for understanding as to how we got here today. Yeah, Chris will tell you, and you know, he, he of course got there a lot earlier than I did. Um, but we, we grew up in a different different world, really, when it comes to this topic, especially. And so, Chris would tell you there's there's things that he learned and things that I've learned that have shaped us. And but it wasn't by a single debate or a single conversation. It just taken time to right. to. I wouldn't say flip is the right word. Chris might say it, but to at least better understand and to understand there's a lot of nuance in this conversation. Um, yeah. Um, so we're going to kind of discuss how we reached our current conclusions about abortion. Um, I'm going to start and basically say it was never discussed for me growing up. Um, my family, we never really talked about it. Then again, I didn't grow up super Christian, like, you know, that kind of stuff um, or religious Um, But in my family, like, we just, that wasn't something we talked about. I didn't really know about, I knew about things like miscarriages and Mm -hmm. things of that nature, but not abortion itself. Um, So I kind of just, like, learned on my own. I remember um, doing, like, Texas's version of sex ed, where it basically (laughs) teaches you more abstinence than anything. Right. But there were mentions of, like, okay, this is what abortion is. It never got too political, obviously, because, you know, public school system. Um, But it was just like, this is what that is. People do it. Let's move on. Right. Because they never want to get too in-depth. And so then it leaves you, like, with questions in, like, middle school. And you're like, what the the hell? Like, what does this even mean? And so I just did a lot of research and understanding myself. um, Just because I always felt that, like, um, it's as a woman, I would prefer to have rights over my own body. Mm. 
Um, and then I began to learn as I got into like high school, um, like different women's like experiences like that were close to me and like their experiences of like, you know, trying to get tubes tied and like dramatic things, of course. Um, and so that kind of always shaped me because I was like, well, I don't ever want to see a woman that I care about or even myself um, experience something as traumatic as like facing whether or not to bring a life into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I took a few criminal justice classes in high school and we obviously learned a lot about like the law, um, i.e. Roe v. Wade. Um, and so when we learned about that and then like, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and like her stance and things like that, that kind of influenced me to be like, Hey, and then also like, um, learning about like the women's movements that Mm. have happened, like voting and women's rights and all that kind of stuff. Um, so like history is what taught me my, or like what shaped my point of view on abortion, I guess. Gotcha. Yeah, for me, I mean, obviously, I grew up in the evangelical culture, so it was taught as this super evil, black and white, you're killing babies, you're killing children. That's just, that was it, plain and simple. And so, me growing up, as I began to try to understand it for myself, it was really about, okay, this is a life, this is a life, life begins at conception, or whatever that line is, and that was the most fundamental, important thing to me. And so, as I began deconstructing, a lot of what helped put me in that direction was just listening to women, listening to, as you correctly put, those with uteruses, um, and hearing their stories about what it means to have or not have rights mm-hmm. and, and what it means to, because there is a history, there's a rich history to what what women can or cannot do with their bodies. Yeah. And, and, and so it, it began to unravel to me that it's not just about the potential life and, and the body, um, as I'll get to later, my biggest thing regarding this discussion is what cast the, what net can do the most damage as regards to whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. What umbrella decision will ultimately cost more lives or not? Mm. Um, and so for me, I'm not going to state everything yet because it's complicated. <laughs> you'll, yeah. you'll hear some of my, you'll, you'll kind of get where I'm coming at because there isn't just a black or white answer for me. Um, though I, I do am for women's bodily autonomy and am pro-choice at this state of my life, it's not just as simple as that. Right. So, you ready to move forward? Yeah, go for it. All right, let's do some stats. Uh, and this is the U.S. because... Yeah. Yeah. This is also <laughs> a, another thing to clarify. Um, this information that we're going to share, and we're also going to get into the history later, this is all strictly United States-based. Except for one little stat that I'll share later, but yeah. yes. Um, just because that's where we live, <laughs> um, I guess. I feel like that's common sense. Um, but just want to clarify that, because obviously in other countries, it is different. Yeah. So. Uh, okay, so I categorized the statistics into a few categories uh, the first one is why so like why do women seek abortions because i think that's very important because yeah. there's an assumption again like i mentioned especially in the evangelical world to kill babies kill babies yeah so according to bmc women's health uh quote women gave a wide range of responses to explain why they had chosen abortion the reasons were com- uh, comp- comprom- compromised of 
no, that's not right, comprised of 35 <laughs> themes, which were categorized under a final set of 11 overarching themes. And this is important here. While most women gave reasons that fell under one, 36%, or two, 29 themes, 13% mentioned four more themes. So in other words, there isn't just one, one reason. Yeah. There's multiple reasons. Uh, so, quote, not financially prepared was 40%. Not the right time was 36 Partner-related was 31 Need to focus on the other children's 29 Interferes with future opportunities, 20 uh, Not emotionally or mentally prepared, 19 uh, Health-related reasons, 12 Wants a better life for the baby, 12 um, I'd like to point out there that not fin- financially prepared, prepared in my brain covers things like health care. Like, you cannot financially cover health care. Yeah, like having a child. Right. Like in the hospital and the cost of that. Like I had okay insurance when we had both of our kids and it was thousands of dollars with the insurance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So over the years. So how has the numbers of abortions in the U.S. changed over the years? According to Pew Research, quote, the annual number of U.S. abortions rose for years after Roe v. Wade legalized the procedure in 1973, reaching its highest levels around the late 1980s and early 1990s, around 1.4 to 1.6 million in a year. According to both the CDC and, uh, I always forget how to pronounce this, Gutmuncher? Gutmunker? I think it's Mocker. Mocker. That makes more sense. Uh, since then, it has generally decreased as what a CDC analysis called a slow yet steady pace. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Very. So, yeah, the, of course, obviously, this is a podcast, so we can't see the graph, but there's right. like this, it goes up and then it just steadily goes down. Um, quote, what is the abortion rate among women in the U.S. and how has it changed over time? In the same Pew article, Gut Mocker says that in 2020, there were 14.4 abortions in the U.S. per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44. Its data shows wow. that the rate of abortions among women has generally been declining in the U.S. since 1981 when it's reported that there were 29, uh, 29.3 abortions per 1,000 women at that uh, same age range. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CDC says that in 2019, there were 11.4 abortions in the U.S. Uh, per 1,000 uh, women ages 15 to 44. Uh, that figure excludes California, Maryland, and New Hampshire, and District of Columbia. Like Gutmunker's data, the CDC figures have also suggested a general decline in the abortion rate over time. In 1980, when the CDC reported in all 50 states and D.C., it said there were 25 abortions per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44. So in other words, both of these very prestigious um, what do you call it? Sources? Sources, not just sources, but where's the word? The reporting, I can't remember. What's the word I'm looking for? Like, I can't read your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Statistical uh, research, I don't know. How, anyways, uh, they show this decline in mm. abortions over time. All right, so let's talk about when. The vast majority of abortions, and this is extremely important to me, uh, happen around 9 to 10, uh, occurring... What? Ge- Nine to ten weeks, excuse me. Oh, okay. Occurring during the first trimester of a pregnancy. In 2019, nine to ten. I was like, oh, God. In, uh, in 2019, 93% of abortions occurred during the first trimester. That is, at or before 13 weeks of gestation, according to the CDC. An additional 6% occurred uh, between 14 and 20 weeks of pregnancy, and 1% were performed at 21 weeks or more of gestation. And I feel there's a bigger medical reason for the ones that occur 21 yeah. weeks and over. Yeah, that's not happening because people were like, oh, oh you I know don't what? want this child. Yeah, I, I made a room. I got a crib and everything. You know what? Nah. JK, I changed my mind. It's, it's nah. It's not for me. All right, so when it comes to, because we talked about healthcare and we talked about women's bodily autonomy, this is important. Maternal mortality. Mm. So this is the uh, maternal mortality ratio, deaths per 100,000 live births. 
So according to the Commonwealth Fund, uh, New Zealand has 1.7 deaths per 100,000 live births. Norway, 1.8. Is this like in, like, individuals? Or like, like, like percentages? At, 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 no, it's, it's a rate. So out of 100,000 live births, 1.7 women will die. Oh, so like two people, roughly. Right. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, cool. Norway, 1.8. Netherlands, 3. Germany, 3.2. Sweden, 4.3. Switzerland, 4.6. Australia, 4.8. UK, 6.5. Canada, 8.6. Now, remember, this is 8.6 out of 100,000 people. People. France, 8.7. United States, 17.4. That's that's double the, the next developed nation, France, mm-hmm. 8.7. Around one-third of U.S. pregnancies-related deaths counted up to one year post-birth occurred during pregnancy. Let me say that one more time. Around one-third of U.S. pregnancy-related deaths counted up to one year post-birth occurred during pregnancy. Mm. So 17% of deaths occur on the day of delivery. 52% occur after delivery or postpartum. Mm. 19% of all maternal deaths occur between one and six days postpartum. 21% between one and six weeks. 12%... Uh, during the remaining portion of the year. Um, these are known as late maternal deaths. And this is just an overarching look at to women's health. Yeah. Uh, and health care. And the mere fact, you know, I won't, won't get to it. But well, it's sure. also like um, a reflection of, like, as you're saying, like, um, women are supposed to, if when you're pregnant, to go see a gynecologist yeah. and things of that nature and get and take prenatals and things like that. Right. But because the cost of medical expenses is so goddamn high, right. people can't afford that, which in turn can lead to this mortality rate for women. And I guess I'll say it here because I, I, I can hear the evangelical in my mind because this is how it was. And this is until recently, this is how it was. If And this is the ex- not, not excuse, but this is the big thing from pro-choicers is that there's a huge hypocrisy in the pro-life movement of just wanting, that's why some call call them pro birth mm-hmm. is because they don't care about that. They don't care about the life of the mother. They don't care about uh. you know healthcare. They don't care about any of that. And I one thousand percent agree with that. That's what these stats are showing. And the mind of the evangelical will go, well, that's still no excuse to kill a baby. Like mm-hmm. that's usually the mindset. Okay, I understand that. I get that. We're going to get to this later. But this is this at least to me paints a clear picture that it's not just about pro life or pro death or pro-choice, whatever you want to call it as an evangelical, these stats show that there is something deeper going on here. That these other countries, these other developed nations, they're doing okay. Yeah. But the U.S., there's something really wrong. Yeah. Um... So here's something, here's more stats. Maternal care workforce. This is the supply of midwives and OBGYNs. Uh, the number of providers per 1,000 live births in Sweden, it's 78. Australia, 75. Norway, 65. U.S., 15. The U.S. is the only high-income country that does not guarantee paid leave to mothers after childbirth. Yep. I, and I will say this outright. If, we, if Christians claim to be the party of pro-life, then these numbers and these stats should be vital. Yeah. Because you should not only be pro-life of the baby, you should be pro-life of the mother. Correct. And ultimately, that does, this doesn't just affect the mother there and then, but this affects generationally. Oh, yeah. If you don't fix these problems at the root, it's just going to create a bigger domino effect. 
And then imagine how this also impacts the families of these individuals. Right, which we're actually about to kind of see here. Public opinion. So this is Pew Research in 2022. About 6 in 10 adults, 57% disapprove of the court's decision that the U.S. Constitution does not guarantee a right to abortion and that abortion laws can be set by states, including 43% of who strongly disapprove, according to the summer survey. About 4 in 10, 41% approve, including 25% who strongly approve. Mm. About 6 in 10 Americans, 62%, say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, according to the Summer Pew Research Survey. Sur- surveyist. That was the word I was saying. Oh, yeah. okay. Uh, little change since the March survey conducted just before the ruling. Uh, that includes 29% of Americans who say that uh, it should be legal in all cases and 33 who say it should be legal in most cases. About a third of U.S. adults, 36%, say abortion should be illegal in all 8% or more 28% cases. That is insane to me that a group of, what, nine people (laughs) get to make this decision for a whole population of a country? It's a minority. Hmm. Um, Okay, continue. Sorry. Remind me to talk about Europe before we move on to the next big subject, okay? Oh, okay. Um, An overwhelming share of religious... Religiously unaffiliated adults, 83%, say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, as do 6 and 10 Catholics. Protestants are divided in their view. 48% say it should be legal in all or most cases, while 50% say it should be illegal in all or most cases. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Majorities of black Protestants, 71%, and white non-evangelical Protestants, 61%, take the position that abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Wow. While about three-quarters of white evangelicals, 73%, say it should be illegal in all 20% or most cases, 53%. Wow. Now, when you also consider that, was it 90% of black Protestants voted for Democratic uh, candidates Mm. this past election? You begin to see that there is a divide here that doesn't have anything to do with religion. It has more to do with who who you're following. Yeah. Here's some rates by states. Teen birth rate by state. Births per 1,000 girls. And they're girls. Top 10. Top ten Teen birth rate. New Mexico, 21.9. Texas, 22.4. West Virginia, 22.5. Tennessee, 23.3. Kentucky, 23.8. Alabama, 24.8. Oklahoma, 25. Louisiana, 25.7. Arkansas, 27.9. Mississippi, 27.9. Bottom 10%, or bottom 10, Maine, 10.6, Oregon, 10.1, New York, 10, Rhode Island, 9.4, New Jersey, 9.2, Minnesota, 9.1, Connecticut, 7.6, Vermont, 7, New Hampshire, 6.6, Massachusetts, 6.1. Do you see a trend in these states? Yeah. I've also learned recently that Massachusetts is the most um, affordable place for health care in the country. Mm -hmm. So that also says something. Now, in case that doesn't you know, open your eyes to something. Here's the maternal mortality rate by state per 100,000 people. Arizona, 27.3. South Carolina, 27.9. Texas, 34.5. Missouri, 34.6. Alabama, 36.4. Arkansas, 37.5. New Jersey, 38.1. Indiana, 43.6. Georgia, 48.4. Louisiana, 58.1. The lowest? California, 4. Massachusetts, 8.4. Nevada, 8.4. Connecticut, 10.5. 58? Yeah. There is a trend here, guys. There is a trend. And 
there, there's a guy, I think mm. we mentioned last episode, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he creates these these graphs based on these this data. And it shows based on how much healthcare, how much um, oh, yeah. the, the disparity, this, the disparity between wealth and 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 race, there there is, which is all determined by um, discrimination. There is a difference here that you will see. Yeah. We we, we have <laughs> we, this these numbers are what really begin to shook me. Yeah. Because again, if you are the party of pro life, these numbers should be. Horrifying to you. I don't know if you know this, but Texas, if it, if it was its own independent nation, it would be like number seven as far as GDP in the whole entire world. You cannot begin to tell me they couldn't afford health care yeah. for, for mothers. California's number, they, they have four. Per one. 100,000. Yeah. I see you wrote down foster care system. Did you have anything you want to write about that or say anything about that? Because I couldn't find anything, to be honest. Um. So it's more of... I guess personal experience. So this disclaimer is not going to be based off statistics. Um, But I have known several people who have been in the foster care system. And most of the time they are adopted by their own family members, distant family members, whether that is grandparents or aunts, uncles, etc. But there's also many instances where children um, stay in the foster care system for a very long time. And it's a very messed up system. Um, In the area in which Tim and I live alone, there are several like women's shelters and um, things of that nature and like foster care, um, social, what is it? Social services Mm -hmm. um, um, just in the area. And it's interesting to see how many there is per the population of the area. Um, it's just a lot more than I feel there should be. Yeah. Um, simply because a lot of these kids end up the, in these systems and it's usually a generational thing um, that is perpetuated by this system and they just kind of stay in it. Um, I took a couple of criminal justice classes in college as well. Um, and very often kids, children... Um, who were born in the foster care system. Um, And this is not to say all of them, um, but statistically in the foster care system, they ended up um, going into crime, various different kinds of crime, whether it be like theft or Mm. um, things of that nature, even as far as murder, Um, simply because this is a system that is difficult to get out of if you're not lucky enough to have people close to you. Right like a lot of the people that I know who have been adopted by family members. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like the first excuse I think of um, the church is be like, oh, you can just put them up for adoption. And if you know anything about adoption, it is expensive. Very. Not just internationally, <clears throat> but also within the United States. Yeah. And so to force people to give birth and to contribute to a system because they don't have money to take care of their children, um, it's just perpetuating a system that will never end. Yeah, yeah, and there's th- this is by no means saying that there aren't good people who foster and adopt because there, right. are, there some of my favorite people in the world have fostered for many years and they're wonderful people, um, but the system is 
it's not perfect. Yeah. He, he, I did find some stats for you real quick. If you let me go over, this is from the yeah. uh, Annie E. Casey Foundation. Um, where is it? Uh, the, here we go. The likelihood that a child will be abused or neglected in the United States has improved slightly in recent years. Eight in 100,000 kids under 18 were confirmed victims of maltreatment in 2020, 2020 after holding steady at nine per 1,000 from 2015 to tw- 2019. Um, here we go. Uh, 2020, uh, 219,964 children under 18 entered foster care in the U.S. at a rate of 3 per 1,000 people. The rate of entry has hovered at 3 to 4 over uh, per 1,000 for two decades. Two decades. I'd like to pause here to point out this is a question I think I posed two weeks ago. If the church's response to this is, well, just foster and just, you know, the church should be able to take care of it, we've had 50 years to take care of it. Kids aged 1 to 5 make up the largest share, 30% in 2022 of foster kids. We, we've had time. Mm-hmm. Uh. The last thing I'll say before we move on to the next subject, because uh, Europe entered my head, because that was one of the things that I always kind of relied on, was like, well, Europe has, I think, most of their countries there have, like, I think 15, uh, 15, 15 weeks is the line where anything before that is totally permissible. Like, mm. you can walk in and ask for abortion. It's almost guaranteed. Mm. Um, but after 15, it does get a little bit more sketchy. No, uh, it gets more complicated. The difference, though is that most of the European nations have a far better healthcare system and that there are far less abortions necessary by 15 weeks. Yeah. Um, I wish I had stats for that, but I just know that off the top of my head. Just, I mean, based on what we saw with maternity, um, uh, maternal mortality um, shows that. Yeah. So. Very good. Got some history for us? I do. I got some history. <laughs> um, so, like I mentioned earlier, this information is strictly U.S. based. Um, so, this is not to be generalized or applied anywhere else. Just in the U.S., not even in Canada, not Mexico, nowhere else. <laughs> just the United States. So, to start, abortion was common and legal in the United States until 1880, which is when it was made illegal nationwide. Um, So for some historical context there, this is the beginning of the Gilded Age, um, where there were two political parties and their alignments were flipped. Um, So this is when the Republican Party held what we consider now to be democratic values and ideals, um, like in the modern sense, and vice versa. So the Democratic Party held like what we consider Republican um, ideals. And that is not to be exact on the way we view things now, mm-hmm. um, but just kind of some context for like how things were back then. Just just Google Southern Democrats and you'll kind of get an understanding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then this is also bringing about a period of the split Republican Party, um, which is beginning to make that change into what we now consider the modern day pl- Republican Party. Um, so this nationwide ban obviously did not stop the performance of abortions. Um, they were just simply accessed illegally like they will be. Um, so like we see today, the wealthy obviously had zero pl- problems still attaining abortions. However, poor communities, families, and women still struggled, although this did not stop them. 
Um, so this time period into the 1900s and to the roughly like 1930s was known as the progressive era. Um, so this is when many politicians were focused on reform, but this was mostly in political corruption, um, which I find ironic, <laughs> but whatever. Um, but also war. World War One was going on at this time, and societies such as living conditions and the food industry. Mm. Not exactly like rights right. of individuals. Um, so most families still struggle to f- survive following like the rationing of World War One, um, with veterans returning home either like severely wounded or mutilated from war, um, unable to work. So this was like a lot of women's husbands coming back and like. Either they were dead or they just had a leg that was gone, stuff like that, which caused them to not be able to go back to work. So women were still working while still trying to take care of their families. Um, So as well as during this time period, the Great Depression was soon to follow in the late 1920s. Um, So basically, women could not physically and economically afford any more mouths to feed in their homes. Um, they could barely afford to live with themselves. Um, also birth control and its various forms, um, at least at that time and the effective ones, um, that didn't involve like damage later on, such as like herbs and things Mm. that women would just disclaimer, um, I guess kind of thing. They would just shove it up into their vaginas and that would obviously cause damage. Right. Um, but they would do anything to avoid having children. Um, but this, like, as- attaining birth control was extremely uncommon for the lower class, especially if you were, like, um, a woman of color. Like, that was, yeah. al- that was almost impossible. Um, this would go on for decades until the clinical trials began for Inovid in the 1950s, which was the first form of birth control, like the pill. Um, so, in 1983, Diane Sands, who was a... Um, She's a politician from Montana. Um, She conducted a series of oral histories from 10 women who had abortions in Montana before it became illegal in 1973. All of the women emphasized that they wanted children. That was not a doubt in their mind. They all wanted to have kids, but only when they had the ability and the resources to raise them, which I hear often don't have sex if you can't afford to take care of a kid. But don't get rid of the kid if you still can't afford Mm -hmm. to take care of it. Um, So one of the women who went by EM or M um, was a married woman. um, And she had three abortions in the 1930s. And although trying several different types of birth control, she still ended up pregnant. Um, She shared that during the Great Depression that her and her husband felt it was unethical to have children that they could not provide for. Mm. There were roughly... 681,000 abortions happening per year during the Great Depression era. Um, And this is from a source that will be in our show notes. Um, But basically, attaining abortion would still not be easy in the mid-20th century. Um, The cost of abortions, still illegal, mind you, at this time, um, was increasing as well. So this was up into um, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, this would prove to be even more significantly difficult for women of color as many doctors would refuse to perform an abortion on a woman who wasn't deemed a respectable woman. Um, Roe v. Wade, um, the Supreme Court case, occurred in 1973 that held the constitutional protected right um, for a woman to obtain abortion prior to the viability of a fetus. So... 
that's basically like the history um, of it before it became officially legal in the last, what was, how many years is that? Until recently? About 50. About 50? In the last 50 years. 90, oh, yeah, 50 years. 50 years. I, th- I thought it would be wise after that to begin to talk about the discussion that really is at the foundation of this this conversation, mm. and that is where does life begin? Because mm. that has honestly been my biggest hurdle in right. all this. In conversations that I've had with Chris, and this is just me being completely honest, that has still been the biggest um, hurdle because mm. at the end of the day, if there, if we do consider it a life, at whatever line you put it at, then it is still taking a life. Now, if it is harming the mother, if it is going to hurt the mother, then my stance has always been, yeah, go for it. That I understand. Right. But there's the the biggest excuses, which is why I mentioned in the stats as to the whys, is th- there's this assumption again that it's just you want to do that. That, that they just want to take lives, and that's not the case. Right. And so the question for me has been, where does life begin? And I found this very moving article for me, uh, and maybe it will be for you too. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's extremely long, but I'm going to try my best to push through the main points that he gets through. And this has at least helped me get through pushing me over to the other stance. Um, So um, this article comes from Nathan Nobis as a PhD or is it novice? Novice? I don't know. Uh, associate professor at philosophy at Morehouse College and the co-author of Thinking Critically About Abortion. Um, so I'll start, I'll start from a quote. Um, he says, Critics of abortion tend to think that the answer to this question, that life begins at conception or soon after, is obvious, scientific, and shows that abortion is wrong, is indeed murder, and should be illegal. Pro-choice advocates may accept this framing of the issues by agreeing that the question is important, but instead argue that life begins at birth or the first breath or far later in pregnancy after most abortions occur. Mm. To many, it seems like the debate of when life begins is irresolvable. This is unfortunate uh, This is unfortunate since this failure to make progress is largely a result of people not asking what the question means. A clarifying what is being asked and listening carefully to try to understand the range of answers. As a philosophy professor who teaches logic and critical thinking, I suggest that asking the simple question but powerful question, what do you mean? Mm. So to begin, anti-abortion advocates, and this is still quoting uh, Dr. Nobis, uh, to begin, anti-abortion advocates are correct that the question, when does life begin, can have a scientific answer. To understand what can be asked by when does life begin, let's consider the corresponding question. When does life end? Mm. Now, it is just when the physical. Now, is it just when the physical body dies, or perhaps earlier? Let's consider the many cases where this issue isn't so black and white, such as with comas and mm. brain dead patients. Okay, so here is just a hypothetical: if a healthy person gets into an accident which results in them becoming brain dead, and let's say they are kept alive for ten years after that accident, the question is then. Did they have a life during those 10 years? Mm. As Novus points out, people's stories can end before the death of their bodies. A body can be alive in a biological sense, but there is no life in this biographical sense. Right. Um, and 
Let me say that again because he says it really well here. In the biographical sense that many people find to be the most significant for understanding who they are and how they should be treated. These questions are personal and religious. Different people will reasonably give different answers to this question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just true. You, you think about in that situation, there different people are going to want to hold on longer. Right. And some people are going to say, no, they're, they're, they're dead. They're no longer with us. Yeah. That's usually their terminology. Yeah. Um, so, quote, it's important to note that the question of when our lives end is not a scientific question. It really is, it, excuse me, it is really a question about questions. In cases like these, does life mean life in a biological sense? Or is life when we value what we value from our ethical, personal, religious, and otherwise perspectives concerning the beginning and ending of our stories as persons and what we value? People make choices all the time when to pull the plug, but the reasoning is not as simple as their body is alive or not. It often relies on more on the concept of consciousness. Yeah. And to like, <sighs> what a, the idea of what living is. Right. Yeah. Um, he continues by saying, in, in ways that matter morally, if our lives end when our consciousness or minds permanently end, then it's plausible to also believe that life begins when consciousness begins. That is the start of us. We begin after our, our bodies begin, our, as embryos and beginning fetuses, our stories, what our lives are like for us from our point of view, haven't begun. I didn't develop consciousness of living until I was like four <laughs> years old, I think. <laughs> so that's the case. Um, he says, when does, a when does a fetus develop consciousness? That's a scientific question. Earlier research suggested the third trimester, and more recent discussions suggest perhaps the beginning of the second trimester. But around nine of ten abortions occur before either of those estimates. Yeah. And that's a, that, that right there was a, oh, okay. Ab abortion critics will also argue that there is a disanalogy between end-of-life cases and beginning-of-life cases, since embryos and beginning fetuses are not brain-dead. Um, when and to the extent that they have brains, their brains are biologically alive. That's true, of course, but their brains are not alive in a sense related to being conscious and having uh, experiences. The lesser-known concepts of brain birth or being brain-alive do not yet apply to them. Right. And he finishes by saying this. Are women obligated to use their bodies to support beings that are merely biologically alive but not biographically alive? Should they be legally compelled with threats, force, and punishment to support something that's not a someone, as laws banning abortion do. Put in these terms, the answers are easier than before. I think he makes a really good argument. Yeah. This was one of the things, and I'll get to this later regarding umbrella decisions. But this was the one of the articles, and I just read this recently, mm -hmm. that really kind of helped me make a stance. Because th that life thing is important, and it should be. Yeah, it, it should be an important decision, just as a bodily autonomy. But there, that's why if you're going to argue with someone on the pro-life side, it's it's almost pointless to try to use the phrase "my choice" because in their brains, it's your choice to murder someone. Right. My biggest thing is I hate when I see things like um, I see a lot of billboards that are like, "Oh, at blah 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 weeks they grow fingernails." Yes. What's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with me? That's yeah. not like Sorry. dead people have fingernails. <laughs> if that's the case, you know what yeah. I mean? So it's just like, I think this answer is like a great question of like, obviously it's still going to be up to the individual person. Right. What they consider like living. Um, but at the end of the day, my, my reason, like my belief is that that should not be determined by someone else 
who mm. is not the one carrying the child. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was an interview with, um, oh, what's his name? Not Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, oh, what's his name? He He's like a staunch atheist, and he, he wrote The Office, the original British one. Oh. Um, oh, what's his name? People will know it when I say that, but... Anyways, someone asked him, like, because, oh, it was Stephen Colbert. It was an interview with him and Stephen Colbert. And he asked him about life after death. He's like, what do you think life after death will be? And he goes, I don't know. Like, what do you think life was before birth? It was just nothingness, and there wasn't no things. And that really kind of also kind of made me relate to this. Is it Ricky? Yeah, Ricky Gervais. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, And he basically said something along the lines of it's just there was nothing. There was nothing there. And it it really kind of painted a clearer picture for me of, like, at that certain line, there is nothing there. Yeah. You, you know, we'll get to later about the Bible and stuff, actually right up next. Mm-hmm. But in a scientific sense, which is what a lot of, this is when, th- this is when pro-lifers like to care about care, science. Care about science. Yeah. Um, but it, to me, this argument is very compelling. And, yeah. and what's more compelling is that the time of which this would mean anything as far as consciousness Nine out of ten abortions happen before that. Yeah, and so anytime abortions happen after that, it's usually because something really is it, wrong, and the mother could die. Right, it has nothing to do with intent. It has nothing to do with wanting to harm someone. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah, I. <laughs> I'm just. Not, I'm trying not to like beat the the dead horse or whatever the saying is because we're just reiterating the same points, but it's just. Insane to me. And, and I want to, I guess I should be careful how I'm saying this because I, I get it. I truly 1000% get it because I've been there. Yeah. Uh, if it is a life, then yes, we should be advocating advocating for life. That That is a biblical theme. But don't just advocate for that life. Well, not just that, but it, th- this issue is so much more nuanced than that. Yeah. Because life is very subjective. There is no scientific consensus on when life begins. Yeah. Um, there just isn't. You, you, you people will say, well, okay, I don't think actually I don't have this anywhere in my notes, so I guess I'll say it here. People will say like, well, biologists will, you know, say that it's a, like it's a life. Like, look, what about sperm then? Sperm is alive and moves on its own and everything. So does that mean every single time a dude masturbates or um, they just shoot out stuff that that's murder? Murder. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's a silly analogy, but it's it's an important one because it's like if you're going to use that as a as an understanding for life, then it's just full of black and whites that are not there. It's yeah. so much more complicated. It's a lot than of that. gray area. Yeah, more than we originally thought when this was like a thing in like the 1800s. Yep. Let's move on. What do we got, Harley? Um. So next, we're going to talk about abortion in the Bible. I mean, it's deconstruction series. I guess we should... We should mention the Bible <laughs> a little bit. Um, so, bottom line is, it's not mentioned. It's not. In the Bible. It's not. Um, we'll dive into why it became such a staple, though, in the conservative Christian uh, realm in the next se- section. But um, we wanted to bring up some verses that are often used to, cr- to critique the abortion stance. Yeah. Um, by the way, all of these we've heard in multiple cases... Um, but you wanted to reference Dan McClellan. Okay. Yeah, he's he he's my one of my new favorite scholars. Um, he's a very smart man. Mm. Knows his things about the Bible. So all of these, except for two, I think all these scriptures. There's some points in here that are basically referencing what he has said about these scriptures. So gotcha. I figured someone who's got a PhD in scriptural 
you know, knows what he's talking know about. what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, I'd rather reference that than just us uh, shooting off of our yeah. What we so. You, oh, oh, you, you, me, me, you. Uh, my brain glitched for a second. <laughs> sorry. Um, so numbers five, uh, the ordeal of the woman suspected of adultery. Um, so according to Dan McClellan, he doesn't prescribe this as an endorsement of abortion as it wouldn't have been understood this way to its original readers. Um, so to, to quote him, um, favorable outcome for the woman is fertility in the future. The text says she will conceive the unfavorable outcome has more to do with imagery associated with infertility in the broader ancient Near East. And that is the most common punishment for marital infidelity and sexual sin, both within the Bible and the, in the broader ancient Near East. In other words, infidelity was viewed as God's punishment for some greater sin. Right. This is actually one of the verses that's used, I think, a lot of times by pro-choicers to show that abortion was allowed and there's, I think, a more important note that Dan brings up here is that that mindset wasn't around back then. Right. The same way with, like, gender. That wasn't a thing back then. Um, it, infertility had something to do with a punishment from the gods. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so what this this story shows is that if the woman doesn't have birth, it's almost like this, it's so, it's like this backwards way of doing It's like witches. Like, if a witch will... You know, float. Then she must be a witch. Like after after oh, the kid, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, um, or whatever the the situation. And is. then if she drowns, then she wasn't a witch. Right, right. It's it's a backwards way of looking at it. And so, like, if a woman has birth, then she is without sin. And it was it was she didn't have an adultery, and mm. it, yeah. But if she doesn't, then she must have sinned, or it must be something right. wrong. So that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is a big one for me. Exodus 21. This is case law in verses 22 and 23. So what happens if men who are fighting accidentally injured a pregnant woman? So again, this doesn't directly address abortion, but addresses where human life is valued. Um, so if they induce a miscarriage, and again, this is, comes from Dan Clone, if they induce a miscarriage, then the husband and judges will determine a fine. If the woman dies then it will be life for life. In other words, the death penalty. So it's saying if the woman dies herself, the pregnant woman, not the the fetus. Correct. Mm. Yeah. Um, So this is a very important mindset because this is something that you will see time and time again in ancient scripture is there is a level of lives that are worthy, more worthy than others. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously back then, men were the top thing, then women, then slaves, those kind of things. Right, but right, right. this shows that there was a priority and may not be exactly where you think it's going to be. Um, you want to take this next one? Yeah. Um, life begins at first breath. So it doesn't say implicitly, but it is and has been debated and um, implied by rabbis for centuries. It goes hand in hand with Genesis 2, in which God breathes in life into Adam. Furthermore, rabbis have also been debating the man of life. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Um, that exists at different stages. Oh, meaning of life. I'm, or, I must have miswrote that. The state. What did I mean to write there? <laughs> Why did I wrote man with two N's? <laughs> This is what I get for doing this at 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I think 2 a.m. in the morning? Yeah, 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I think I had stages of life, or meaning of life that exist at different stages. I think that's what I meant to Oh, okay, cool, cool. Um, So, to reiterate, um, rabbis have been debating the meaning of life, or what is a better word? Yeah, I guess meaning of life is pretty good, Um, that exists at different stages. For instance, in the Talmud, um, which is essentially a Jewish religious law book, 
Um, before 40 days, it's just water. And after 40, it's something else. What does yeah. that mean? So essentially, exactly what it means. Like it was suggested in Jewish law that before 40 days, whatever's inside there mm-hmm. is just water. And then afterwards, oh. it actually becomes something else, which is complicated. There's actually many different options, but it, it's something more important, whether it's life, whether it's, they don't actually know, but it's something living. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. It, it, in other words, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it even less clear. Yeah. Um, okay. So, another big one that a lot of people like to shout out, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. My question to this, and this is not Dan, this is me, um, how far does this go? Remember, like how far back? Right. Because remember who wrote this. This is ancient people with an ancient understanding of fertility. Does does he know us? Does God know us? Does he know the fertilized egg that doesn't implant? Hmm. What about the vanishing twin and the one twin that does and is absorbed by the other twin? Have you, do you know about those cases? Yeah. Where yeah, yeah, twins yeah. are literally absorbed, other embryos are absorbed into I the other? I see that on TikTok a lot. Um. Well, well, what about the placenta? What, 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 there, there is this, this understanding of I knew you before you're in the womb. It, it, it assumes that we know where that life begins. or Because if there is a, I'm not even talking about miscarriage. I'm talking about like all the failed conceptions. Because if life begins yeah. at conception, then what about all the failed ones? Yeah. Because it was there. That didn't plant. So God knows you before the life carried out um i I wanted to say this because it's it's such a what's the word i'm looking for it's a prideful thing to say um you see we don't know exactly when life can begin we can make these assumptions we can ultimately guess where life is important or where it ultimately biologically scientifically makes sense but to use scriptures like these it you're using it as a weapon, ultimately. Yeah. Because it's not black or white. Um, we see in these other... And scri- even, it, like, in the scriptures themselves, it's really not black and white no, either. No, no, it's not. Um, so, I wrote this down, so let me see if I, this makes any more sense. So, the question is, does the Bible declare when life begins? No. It definitely advocates for life. But to use the Bible and its scriptures that were written thousands of years ago by people with ancient understandings of... Con- uh, conception to apply to a very modern scientific understanding of life and abortion is ignorant at best and manipulative and harmful at worst. Yeah. And that's what I want to get to in all this is that we can, we can find value in, in the scriptures and the Bible. And, and, and definitely I would agree with that. There is a value of life. I 1000% agree with that. The problem is with this understanding of life in the womb, it's so far beyond what these people understood. Yeah. So far beyond. And as we see with the different contradicting and interesting verses, they didn't understand everything. Or, and, or at least, if you really went to the extreme, God didn't explain it to them. Oof. Oof. Um, so it, it does anger me when people use Scripture as an excuse or as a weapon to, to shame and guilt people yeah. about this topic. Because, again, most of these abortions are not happening out of malice or even at the later stages of pregnancy, but they're ha- happening out of desperation. Yeah. Um, or because people chose to be, I guess, a little bit more responsible y- than to right. bring a life into right. a world that they cannot take like, take care of. And in the U.S., that's a very real thing mm-hmm. compared to other nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even afford to give birth. 
alone. Right. You know? All right. What do we got next? Uh, relationships with abortion in the church. Okay. Um, wanted to kind of clarify, because it's different, because as we see here, the Christian, the American Christian church seems to have a more black and white answer to this question than the Bible does itself. Right. They like to have, like, the the answer for it. Yeah. Or, like, the, the reason that they've just kind of gathered from. Yeah. You want me to take Christian. this, or do you want to go into you it? You go for it. Because, obviously, I'm not that familiar with yeah. um, the stance of abortion in the church. And when I did learn about it, I was just like, oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> Um, okay, so obviously, as we've already discussed, this is a very complicated and messy point, uh, but I encourage you all, as I have recommended in the past, to read Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen DeMay uh, to see how the church, as large entities, uh, changed their positions on the matter. But here's basically a small, small, blit, blit, small summary I heard from NPR's history podcast, Throughline, with interview with Elisa Harper, I'm going to butcher these last names, who so forgive me, Rand Abdel Fattah, uh, Ramton Arab-Louis, and Randall Palmer. That's pretty good. Uh, apologies. Um, but in case you didn't know this, the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest Protestant organizations in the U.S., passed resolutions in 1971, 74, and 76, before and after Roe, affirming the idea that women should have access to abortion. So again, I'll cite this um, this article, which is an interview in the show notes, but here is here is in a, in a nutshell. It, hang, it hinges on two main events. Desegregation, and Jimmy Carter. Oh. Are you ready for this? Nope. Basically, <laughs> basically, in the years leading up to 78, segregation was being punished by the government in many areas, like hospitals, schools, mm-hmm. and basically anything receiving tax breaks from the government, as it should. Sure. Um, and because of this, many white students were moving to so-called segregation academies run by evangelical leaders as tax-exempt religious schools. So, for example, during the first years of desegregation in Holmes County, Mississippi, the number of white students in the public schools decreased from 700-something to 28. Damn. Let me, say, let me explain this one Y'all more time. F- vehemently racist. When desegregation happened in the government s- uh, sector, 700, almost about, about 650 kids went from public school to private school. So when the government took away tax-exempt status from these academies that were basically safe havens of segregation, Mm -hmm. such as Jerry Falwell's in Lynchburg, uh, Virginia, alarm bells began ringing for evangelical leaders. So this is a quote from, oh no, I forgot to write it down. It's one of those people I mentioned. Around this time, a conservative political activist named Paul Weyrich uh, was trying really hard to grow the Republican Party base. Weirich understood that racism was unlikely to be a gal- galvanizing issue among the grassroots evangelicals. It wasn't until 17, uh, 1976 when Jimmy Carter, a Southern Baptist evangelical and Sunday school teacher, was elected president that Weirich found the issue they could use. Abortion. Mm. During Carter's first few years, he had already begun to lose steam and support of evangelicals because of various issues such as segregation. As Al uh, Arab, oh man, here's that name, Erbli, Erblui, yeah, I'm suck. I'm sorry. Uh, says while many evangelicals were initially uh, all that bothered 
weren't initially all that bothered by Roe v. Wade, a few years on, the number of abortions had begun to climb and made some evangelicals kind of uneasy. Warwick saw this uneasiness as an opportunity. Mm. Uh, Abdul Fattah says he teamed up with some prominent anti-abortion activists and helped amplify resistance to abortion among evangelicals. It worked. In 1979, the moral majority was formed. They threw the support behind Republican candidate Ronald Reagan, and Reagan won. This began the close relationship with the Republican Party and white evangelicals. There is a lot more. There is a lot more to this, which I mentioned in Jesus and John Wayne, but that's essentially where it stems from: is segregation. So they were like, "Oh, well, we can't be racist anymore. So let's focus on something else: women." Yes. Mm. As I mentioned, the SBC, this one of the biggest Protestant groups in America, they 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 affirmed it three times before and after uh, mm. Roe. So that they just didn't care. So this this really here's where this is important is if you're a Christian, especially if you're evangelical, you need to begin to seriously ask yourself is my belief about this topic in any way, shape, or form influenced by the Bible more so or by this? Yeah. By what the Republican Party want. Like, I've noticed a lot of people who are like, oh, because I'm a Christian, I have to align with the Republican Party. Right, right. And it's like, but is that actually what you believe? Yeah. Now, I am by no means, because this was my biggest hinge, because I had learned all, all of this, like the Bible and the the church stuff, before I made my decision, and that still wasn't convicting enough for me. Mm-hmm. However, it should at least show that there is a trend, there is a, a deeper meaning to all this than just saving lives. Mm-hmm. As we saw through the statistics, when it comes to mortality, when it comes to, or excuse me, uh, um, a maternal uh, morality, mortality, uh, when it comes to health care, when it comes to the abortion rates, when it comes to the teen pregnancy rates, there is a deeper issue than, than just saving lives. Right. And the Republican Party for years has used this as a tool to twist, to change, and to obtain power in many various levels of office. It's like an emotional manipulation of some kind. 1,000% it's manipulation. Now, I'm not saying that means if you're pro-life that you can't set that aside because I was that way for a while. But my point is is that the Republican Party as we know it today, this is manipulation. Yeah, They are using this as a tool because if it really truly was about saving lives— There they, wouldn't be fear and shame associated with it. There that. would be better health care. Yeah. There would be access to contraception. And by the way, this is an issue I keep getting into fights with people about— there is tons of legislation being presented right now trying to ban contraception. Yeah, because once they um, reversed Roe v. Wade, that also infringed on a whole lot of rights within the 14th Amendment and things yeah. of that nature. Right to privacy, guys. Yeah. Literally what the whole thing is based upon. So, so it t- to me, I wanted to get to where does life begin and everything like that before getting to this, but it, it does f- further prove a point that a lot of what I... Let me say it like this. The reason why I had this strong stance wasn't because of my biblical understanding of it. It was because of this cultural understanding yeah. of it. Yeah. There is a difference. It's what they told you to believe. And if you, can, if you can remove yourself from that, if you can at least begin to understand and to at least, if anything, try to 
there's some people I know, and I, I don't 100% agree with them, but they are they they are pro life, but they will do things like advocate for uh, for contraception, advocate for uh, free health care and yeah. advocate for things like that. And, and I'm, I'm like, okay, at least they are being pro-life in yeah. all the means. I don't agree with everything, but at least they're getting to that point. Yeah. Um, but some people completely miss that. Right. Completely. Be, be, because it's a cultural, political move. Mm-hmm. And this brings us to our last point. For Saving me, lives. For me, um, I say some stats for the end here. So according to Inside Medicine, years prior to Roe, maternal deaths by abortion were already on the decline due to individual states' legalization of abortion and the widespread use of contraceptions. From 1968 to 72, deaths due to abortion dropped by 50%. That's good. In the five years after Roe, this is where it's important, legalized abortion nationwide, maternal death rates fell 80% compared to the five years before the decision. So in other words... Before Roe, there was already a decline because contraceptions, because of you know certain states legalizing yeah. it. But then when it became really legal, eighty percent of maternal deaths just completely De- gone. Yeah, decreased. The largest year-over-year change occurred in the South between nineteen seventy-two and nineteen seventy-three, when the maternal deaths caused by abortion dropped by fifty-six percent. This is, and there are plenty of other stats that we could share. But as seen in stats already mentioned, there is far less maternal death in countries and states that offer more health care, contraceptions, and safe abortions to its citizens. And so for me, while I still hold on to the belief that life is important and that there is a line, which I don't know exactly where it is, but I, I, I do kind of hold on to what that doctor had mentioned. Um, I do believe there is a point when life starts but to me, it has become a matter of what is going to actually save more lives yeah. in the long run. Um, it has come to my consensus that I, as an individual, as not a doctor, as not a healthcare professional, and as not a woman, I cannot make that decision. Yeah. Ultimately, I can't do that. As, as we saw at the beginning of this episode, there is too many variables. There are too many things. Yeah, like that woman's story and I, stuff like that. I, I, I can't. I can't make that decision for anyone else. The fact that 9 out of 10 happened before, was it 21 weeks or whatever that was? No, it's before that. It's 9 out of 10 is before, is that 14 weeks? Mm-hmm. Or 15. 15 weeks, I think it was. That alone shows me that this is not malice. This is not some evil thing corrupting our nation or whatever. Right. It is about women who who have rather no other option when it comes to those early stages or when it comes to the last stages. It's purely survival. So furthermore, in my goal to save lives in order to prevent harming individuals with blanket rulings that often complicates medical professionals from making the best recommendations, it seems wiser and safer to leave the decision between a woman and her doctor. Mm-hmm. That's just me. Yeah, I agree. And that's and that's why I have changed my stance from pro-life to pro-choice. Um, I, I agree with bodily autonomy, and I agree with um, the, the position behind it. But for me, what really changed it was, even if I agreed that life began at conception, it is still not my decision, nor my 
within my understanding of trying to figure out if, when, when or if it's okay to uh, abort that pregnancy. I just feel um, that if men were in this situation, like they were the ones that had the babies, how different this would all be. Exactly. And that, that's just my thing is I can't be in your shoes for that. Yeah. And that really was another moving thing for me is I can't position my, and imagine that self for me. And so how would I dare infringe that myself on you in that way? Yeah. And so I, I just can't. I just can't. And I think the weight of like an abortion on someone with like a uterus, um, when you have reached the point where you decide that you want an abortion, you know this is a lot more serious than just yeah. taking a plan B. Yeah. This is like, oh, this this could be very traumatic, emotionally, mentally taxing. Um, this can bring shame. This can all of that. like, And so when you reach that point where you're like, yeah, I just still need to do this because I can't take care of a child. It's so much more. There's so many other factors that go into it than just being like, oh, yeah, I just don't want a kid. I'm just going to abort right, it, get right. rid of it. It is so much more serious than that. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people forget. It's not like the easiest thing to just go and do. Yeah. Yeah. No, the most infuriating thing is seeing people, so-called Christians, standing out in front of clinics and everything. It's just, <sighs> there, there is, that is the farthest thing away from what Christ would do. Yep. Yep. yep so yep. much, there is no, not only should we be advocating for pro-life policies, like, I mean, like, Healthcare. Healthcare and yeah. contraception and stuff like that. But we need to be relational in our faith and not impose our faith on others and not impose our beliefs on others, whether it's from biblical or, as I more alluded to earlier, political. Uh, political. Mm-hmm. That's not our place, especially when it comes to someone's own body. Absolutely. I agree. That's all I got. <laughs> should we go to break? We shall. Indeed. We'll be back. friends we're back um at this point in the pod we are going to discuss some opposing arguments against abortion yeah some things that we maybe didn't discuss earlier but or it could have been briefly mentioned that we didn't elaborate on that kind of thing yeah um the first is that you'll regret it tell us about this harley (laughs) i'm gonna try not be profane but Genuinely, what does that have to do with anybody else? Yeah. What does it what does one person's regret have to do with you or your family or whatever? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um cuz that's the same thing for like I don't know, regretting a tattoo, regretting losing a loved one or like a past girlfriend or whatever. Like what does their regret have to do with you? Are you just worried about hearing about it maybe? When somebody confides in you, that kind of thing. But, oh my gosh, my throat. Hello. Um, But even then, their regret is not your business or your problem. But that's also, again, pre-assuming that, or assuming that they're going in there nonchalantly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there isn't already a heavy burden on women going into these clinics. Absolutely. And then, even then... Um, if they do end up regretting it, which there are women who have gotten abortions and have re- regretted it, um, which they have already known 
beforehand before getting this like you know serious what is this what is this? um medical it's not a surgery medical procedure there mm-hmm. we go um that they would possibly regret it and if they do as a as a christian you should love them mm-hmm. regardless you should comfort them if that's like your biggest thing like cuz if you are to be like oh you'll regret it blah 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 like that's your own fault. Like I told you so that kind of thing. That's not Christian. No. That's not God. Like that's not Christ. Like you should never want to do that. You yeah. know what I mean? If, if your whole point of being like, you'll regret it is to be like, Oh, I told you not to do it later on. No. And you slam your head against a wall. And usually the excuse there is like, Oh no, it may not be loving, but it's truthful. And I care more about the truth in this. I'm like, or it's more, oh, it's more loving gosh. to be truthful. I'm like, no, the, the bigger truth is you don't know the whole situation. So you should just leave the f- out of it. Yeah. We also um, <laughs> didn't even get into um, sexual assault cases in oh, this episode, yeah. Oh, yeah. but that's a lot more triggering and things of that nature. But um, like you mentioned, you do not know the circumstance. You do not know what this person could have gone through. Right. So we just basically went into um, things where women did want the kid or like we mentioned, they can't afford a child at that moment mm-hmm. kind of thing. So well, it's like that woman at the beginning of what Dr. Eric was talking about. Like that woman should should be allowed to have an abortion. Yeah. Like she didn't know her contraception failed and it ultimately led to her death. Yeah. And like, the baby. Yeah. And the baby. Anyways, next up. But we still have contraception. As discussed, As many mentioned, <laughs> many lawmakers are actually trying to get rid of it. Yeah. Contraceptive ban. Just Google it. Look it up. It's right there on the interwebs. Um, next up. The, <laughs> this one made me the most mad during my research. Um, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion. <laughs> if, Tim, would you like to start? Guns. Guys, guns aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Arms are, but arms can mean anything, like knives or swords. Yeah. Their, their arms has it, nothing to do with a machi- like a gun. It was also written at a time where it took about two minutes to to load a rifle. <laughs> so we're we're not going to get into yeah, that because because this was this was the excuse by the Supreme Court in overturning Roe v. Wade that the Constitution doesn't make an actual reference to abortion, and so therefore it's not an actual right, and therefore it has to be done through the law or whatever. But it's like no, it, what you I'll let you take this next point because you you write out here with with the p word. Yeah, privacy, it would which is literally what. Roe v. Wade was based upon in right. the first place. Um, so things like there's multiple. Um, you ever heard of the Ninth Amendment? <laughs> yeah. Um, that protects enumerated rights, which is rights that are not distinctly <laughs> mentioned in the Bill of Rights. This is my favorite. These are inferred <laughs> fundamental rights. Yeah. Privacy is one of them. Therefore, abortion would be one of them because yeah. that is a private matter, a private medical matter. So this is inferred through several other amendments, such as like, you know, um, due process. Um, what is it? The fifth and sixth and um, also the first, which mm-hmm. is like protection of like speech and uh, what is it? Will you protest, I guess? Protest? Oh, yeah, yeah. All of that. It's all protected under privacy because that is an inferred enumerated right. Um, so I did kind of research <laughs> and I'm just so angry about it. Um, 
so basically when Roe v. Wade was made, it went through this thing called strict scrutiny, where they basically looked at what a pregnancy is. Mm. They split it into the trimesters. Um, so this is literally from Cornell Law School mm. covering. Um, it started here? What? The trimesters, like the definitions for. I don't know. Um, exactly if that's when it started. Oh, that's just when they started classifying they, it? They, yeah, they started classifying it. Okay. Um, in Roe v. Wade. Um, so basically, they said, they, they split it, um, divided the pregnancy period into three trimesters. During the first trimester, the decision to terminate the pregnancy was solely at the discretion of the woman. After the first trimester, the state could regulate procedure. During the second trimester, the state could regulate but not outlaw abortions in the interest of the mother's health. But after the second trimester, the fetus became viable, mm. which is what they considered life right. or something like that. But the state could not regulate or outlaw abortions in the interest of the potential life except when necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. Mm. So basically, they were like, okay, before the um, third trimester, uh, somewhere along the lines of the second trimester, life is viable. You cannot have an abortion yeah. unless it's in the health, the better health interest of the mother, which, come on, common sense, kind of yeah. what we reflected on um, in all of the statistics. But it also said, like, that is not a life yeah. before then, and it is viable at the discretion of the mom. Um and so that made it become a fundamental right, um, which I also kind of looked up. And contraception falls under that. Did you know that? Contraception mm -hmm. falls under fundamental rights. <clears throat> so I also had to look up the actual support, like the Supreme Court case that reversed Roe, which is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And I don't know if anybody knows about it. I don't think anybody's really talked about it like that actual case that is reversed row. Um, basically, this new case, um, the defense that concluded whether or not something is a fundamental right, aka abortion in this instance, is because it is not deeply rooted in U.S. history and t tradition. So you can look yeah. up this Dobbs versus um, Jackson's Women's Health Organization on Law Cornell, Cornell Law <laughs> School, um, because they reported about it. But because abortion is not deeply rooted in U.S. history and t tradition, they revoked it as a fundamental right. Yeah. Which, as we have discussed today on the pod, it has been deeply rooted <laughs> in U.S. tradition and history. Indigenous cultures yeah. were doing it long before yeah. um, the United States was established. As we mentioned, all throughout the 1800s and 1900s, women were getting abortions. There were slave women, enslaved women, who would shove cotton into their vaginas to prevent getting pregnant by their slave owners because they didn't want to birth another child into slavery. Yeah. That is rooted in U.S. history. And this is where I'm going to start getting emotional, but we're not going to do that. But yes, so the fact that they want to revoke this fundamental right because it is not relevant to, I guess, U.S. history is bullshit to me because it absolutely is. So thank you for letting me go on that little rant. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Our next opposing argument is that you shouldn't risk it. Yeah, that's the assumption that if you, if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't. You should go into the mindset if you have sex, you can risk it. Right. Abstinence. 
number one, even forgetting that, contraception isn't a hundred proof. Oh like, yeah, it's it's not. Th- th- there is nothing. I got some stats. Go for it. Uh, among sectively, not sectively, sexually <laughs> active women who are, I think we've used sex more in this episode than any other episode prior. Probably, yeah. Uh, among sexually active women who were not seeking pregnancy, not seeking pregnancy, 88% were using a contraceptive method in 2016, as this proportion has remained steady since 2002. Mm. Contraception use among women who were sexually active and not seeking pregnancy was lowest among 15, 24 year olds. 83%. Now, th- keep, keep these numbers in mind here. It's with, still with pretty the high. Age. It is. 15 to 24-year-olds, 83%, and highest among 25 to 34-year-olds at 91%. Why do you think there is an almost 10% difference there? Um, that's a great question. I think the simplest one would be finances. Oh, yeah. Like, that, that's the biggest one in my brain. Uh, among women who were sexually active and not seeking pregnancy, those identifying as non-Hispanic white, uh, another non-Hispanic race or multi- multiple races had similar rates of contraceptive contraceptive use at 89%. So white people, mostly 89%. Mm-hmm. The rates for those identifying as non-Hispanic black or Hispanic were 84 and 87 respectively. So still very high. Yes. Some 86% of sexually active women not seeking pregnancy with incomes below the federal poverty uh Level used a method. Wait, what? Used a method. While ninety-one percent of those with an income at least three hundred percent of the party. Let me say it again. Some eighty-six <laughs> percent of sexually active women did uh, not seeking pregnancy with incomes below the federal poverty level used a method. While ninety-one percent of those with an income of at least three hundred percent of above the poverty level did so. Right. And lastly, among sexually active women not seeking pregnancy, 81% of those with no insurance coverage used contraceptives, as did 87% of those covered by Medicaid and 90% of those covered by private health insurance. That's very interesting to me that those with health care coverage still used high rates of mm-hmm. contraceptives. Um, but even then, these are all extremely high percentages. Yeah. Like in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Women are not people. People are using protection. They're trying and to, And it yeah. is still failing. I know uh, one of my besties from high school, she was birthed because her mom was on birth control and used a condom, and she was still bur- born into the world. Yep. Our son Jim was a surprise. Oh, see? <laughs> see? <laughs> like, it is not always, like you said, 100 proof. Yeah. It's not always going to work. Yeah, and, and there's a trend. You can see, it. granted, it's still high, but those younger and people of color who are, as a collective, are less likely to have health insurance and less wealthy are less likely to have access to contraceptives. Yeah, so it, it's... I don't want to say it's inevitable because I feel like that's a bad term, but it's also just, like, more difficult to prevent right. when they don't have access. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. Next up, which we briefly kind of discussed... Yeah. Not even briefly. We definitely went over this. Um Life begins at conception. Depends. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. There's no doctoral or scientific consensus. So in my brain, that goes just, what do you mean? Cause it's, it's all willy-nilly. It's, yeah. It's hard to define single-handedly. Yeah. Um, the church can help aid. What Where you been f- at? What the, yeah. <laughs> what, come on. It's been 50 years. <laughs> um, but no, it doesn't. No. No. It, it hurts people instead. And it shames. Yeah, as we've seen historically. Um, there was a story that I mentioned, um, that it, and I didn't mention, that was in that article that I had mentioned from the, the historical mm-hmm. um, 
um, brain. And it was a woman that was saying how, um, no, it was a reverend that was saying how, well, we do try to help where we can, but as the the prices increase, like I had mentioned in that 50s, 60s area, the prices of abortions were increasing. They can only do so much to find cheap abortions for, for people mm. to attain. Um, and even then, it it is completely out of their will, like yeah. out of their hands. So they maybe they do help, but it is still not working enough. Mm. It is not enough. And, and I don't have the numbers to back this up, but I, I can tell you it's true. Like collectively, what is donated to churches, they could very easily cover contraceptions and oh, yeah. and, and help insurance and things like that. They can cover healthcare things. They they have the money to do so. Yeah, they just usually help um, the ones who can afford to benefit them the most. Yeah, that's what I've noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, and last but certainly not least is the potential of life, potential of that child. Your baby can go uh, fix cancer. Can find the cure for cancer. How do you know? <laughs> the mom who's pregnant with this baby that could potentially die during childbirth could find the cure for cancer. You, you know what is both is extremely sad for me, um, but also hilarious, is I've seen people on TikTok who, <laughs> people who are like, yeah, my mom considered it and didn't, kind of what she did. And I'm yeah. like, <laughs> b- people are not, they, they don't know Gen Z very well, especially. No. <laughs> yeah. I just, this, this, th- to me, it's like, well, where do you start with this? Mm-hmm. Do you start at, if it starts at conception, then what about the sperm? Because that's living. The egg is living. It's it's a cell. So, I mean, if you if we found a living cell on Mars, you consider that life. So, if you mm. got rid of the sperm, isn't that getting rid of the potential? Yep. Um, so, so to me, that, that logic is, is not valid. And, I mean, sex in itself is a potential of life. So. Yeah. yeah. I, there's just no, like we've mentioned several times. There is no black or white answer when it comes to this. No. But, yeah, so that concludes that. Um, any final thoughts? Yeah, I'll go first. I'll let you take the final word. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, it, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it just comes down to what will save more lives and what is the bigger umbrella decision. Like, from what I've seen, especially since the overturning of Roe, there has been action and motive to not only ban abortions completely, mm-hmm. um, but also make it extremely more difficult for those seeking health care um, and seeking medical help because of whether it's miscarriages or health issues in the womb. Yeah. Um, there's a reason why I mentioned those, why, why we mentioned those definitions earlier about miscarriage and uh, spontaneous abortions is because these laws that are being passed have little to no understanding of these true medical definitions and it makes it hard for doctors to make decisions and if there's anything you should know about the medical field is that time is is important yes um and so the more times you have to go back to the doctor is more money and that means less times that women are more likely to go to the doctor and seek medical help and so ultimately for me from what i've seen both on just when abortions happen based on where I think life begins, what that even means, um, I, I see more life being saved through policies that encourage more contraception, more health care for women, and safe legal abortions. Yeah, that's just that's just how I see it. And plus, it's none of my damn business. Mm, that's some good stuff. <laughs> Love to hear that from a man. Um, I guess my final thoughts are: um, 
like we mentioned earlier, there's this pod was not to change anyone's opinion. Um, it was to provide insight, provide facts. Um, hopefully, you listen to, um, and to hopefully show a new perspective. Yeah. On such a serious topic that impacts so many people. It's not just women. It's not just people with uteruses. It impacts everyone. Right. Um, and that I just, when it comes to being pro-choice, it is not a matter of you can dislike abortion all you want. Don't get one. If you <laughs> hate it that bad, don't get one. Or don't let your loved one get one. Whatever. Um, but genuinely, who are you to tell someone they cannot do something with their body? You have no right. Because you wouldn't like that said over you. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just hope that with time and with proper legislation and with proper care, um, whether that be health care or just caring about people in general, um, that we can see a change, like you mentioned, um, contraception, um, sexual education. Mm. Oh yeah, big thing. If you really don't want abortions, provide p- proper sexual education for kids. Yeah, for teens. Um, it, you also need to talk more about sexual assault because that's a very common thing that produces a lot of pregnancies, especially in teens. Um. I mean, also in adult women, but as, but still, um, these need to be, you need to have victims protection rights. Mm. Um, that's a big thing that is not covered. Um, just all kinds of coverage that is, I'm not hearing about when people are pro-life Yeah, and I'm tired of it because if you are pro-life, you would care about the lives that we're already living, Mm. whether that is your next door neighbor in your community or across the nation, you should care about them regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of whatever the fuck Mm. you should care if you are that Mm. pro-life. Yeah, that's really all I have to say. Um, Please educate yourself. Yes. Look at the resources that we provided. Yeah. And there's a lot, but (laughs) Um, we tried to quote as many things as possible. Um, but it's only we can only do so much. Yeah. You have to educate yourself and make your own informed decisions and conclusions. So that's all we got for you guys. We that's thank it. you for listening. We thank you for hearing us talk and trying to understand, I guess, a little bit better. Yeah. That's all we can ask for at the end of the day. Keep understanding. Yep. Yeah. All right. Bye everybody. Till next time. Bye.